Hey, this is Mike C. of The Natural Man Podcast. I gotta get this out of the way right off the top. The Natural Man Podcast is intended as general information for educational purposes only and should not be constituted as medical advice or diagnosis of any kind or as a substitute for medical treatment. The information provided in this podcast is not meant to replace the advice of or treatment by any physician. Do not rely upon any information to replace consultations or advice received by qualified health professionals regarding your own specific situation. If you suspect that you have a medical problem, you are urged to seek competent medical help. The Natural Man Podcast and its representatives and agents disclaim any liability for any negative or other medical or other outcomes that may occur as a result of acting on or not acting on any information contained in the podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the host and all guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast and at the website of The Natural Man Podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent, and does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the natural man podcast that's it here we go natural living in a not so natural world this is the natural man podcast welcome to the natural man podcast my name is mike c we're glad you've joined us for another episode this is an exploration into health wellness and discovering new ways to improve one's vitality And today we have a guest in the acupuncture and TCM field, that's traditional Chinese medicine. He's a practitioner who's board certified in traditional Chinese medicine and a licensed acupuncturist based in Scottsdale, Arizona, Robert Kogadal. Robert, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Um, So, Robert, tell me a little bit about your practice. Uh, let's see. Well, uh, I have a very amazing acupuncture business that I have now been actively treating patients for 20 years as a board certified acupuncturist. Um, and I am one of the luckiest guys around. I have the good fortune to see a wide variety of people with multiple health complaints um, and also people who are looking really to use acupuncture as it's historically been used for health and wellness, that is for prevention and for maintaining their health uh, that they already have and doing everything they can that makes sense um, to keep it. Uh, So I see patients Monday through Friday at my office, which has been in Scottsdale for the last uh, 18 years. Um, I had an office in Manhattan before that, um, so I guess 22 years now. And um, my wife, Mary, and I, she runs the front. Um, I have, um, well, you can't see it, but behind me here are my my offices. And I welcome everyone who comes in with a concern for their health, their well-being, and want to address it. using non-toxic therapies to help either heal or or keep their health. That's great. Um, Now, explain acupuncture to me, because I I mean, I've always sort of struggled to understand it. Um, You know, as a licensed therapist, give me the rundown of how the modality works. I've been to different acupuncturists and I've seen um, different methods among different practitioners. So how would you describe it to a to a layman. Well, hopefully the different methods um, we can explain so that you get a comprehensive view of the multimodalities that are used within Chinese medicine. Acupuncture is just one tool 
that is used amongst the variety of tools that we have. We have botanical medicine. We use things like moxibustion, which is an herb that we burn. It's a form of physical therapy, which in which we're different massage tools. This is called a gua sha. This is a jade gua sha. Um, we burn an herb also that we'll use, and certainly everyone knows about acupuncture, which are some um, examples of the needles that we use. And so if people, uh, your audience out there, want to get a sense of what does a person who is a licensed acupuncturist do, um, they practice, quote unquote, Chinese medicine, which is a holistic theory um, which posits that uh, the human organism being alive um, produces and manifests an energy, which they call qi, of which there is nothing mysterious about it. Um, and the way that I try to help clarify this for my patients when they come in, um, sorry, I'm getting, it's interesting watching myself talk and then looking at you at the same time. But um, my patients, when they come in, um, I try to give them this clear, sense of what I'm trying to accomplish. And so I asked them this question and I'll ask you this question. What do we call a body with no energy? A sick person. No. Okay. Dead. <laughs> it's called a cadaver. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. So if um, okay. at the end of this life and at least in hospitals, um, when the doctor uh, looks and he no longer or she no longer sees an electrical signal, that's written down as time of death, correct? Correct. So fundamental to the fact that you are here is because you are animated. You are currently alive. And when you do not have energy, you are a corpse, correct? Yeah. So that stark contrast is meant to give people a clear sense that um, anything that lowers the ability of you to hold a charge in your cells or to um, qualitatively make energy will be the net loss and the reduction of your ability to repair and is a feature of aging. So um, in order for you to understand when you ask me the question, what is acupuncture? We have to first start by clarifying that you as a living organ organism uh, produce um, a piezoelectricity and that piezoelectricity flows in your body along the fascial planes. And acupuncture is a tool that helps to maintain, you could say, the movement or flow within that system, that electrical system that you are. Okay. So, so given that information. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so given that information, um, how do you as a practitioner, how are you able to observe um, if this modality, what it's doing to the patient as you treat them? Can you observe what's happening? Is there different vital signs that you look at? Or am I, am I approaching all this sort of conventionally? And is that not uh, something that's applicable here? I'm trying to wrap my head around this perfectly applicable because um, historically, right, the um, Chinese medicine, they didn't have x-rays, uh, they didn't have brain scans, they weren't doing blood tests. And so um, the physician became the instrument of the perception of where 
and at what level the illness or the imbalance has either progressed to or is at. And so this is usually um, then diagnosed through the process of what are called the 10 questions. When any patient comes in, they go through a series of a systems evaluation to see what their entire system is telling us. Um, and the, then the, the Chinese physician will take the radial pulse um, and feel for the quality, the strength, the location, um, and a number of other factors that go into the 28 pulse qualities that are meant to give at least a, an overview of the overall um, balance, well-being, and strength of the individual. It's then followed up with um, forms of acupressure or testing of areas of sensitivity on the body, um, and then generally followed up, followed up with evaluating the tongue. And the tongue is considered a mirror or a map of where there may be other areas that you can correlate together with the patient's collective symptoms, their pulse, and collectively all that leads to a diagnosis. So Chinese medicine is the most sophisticated holistic model that the world has ever produced. It's a beautiful binary system that uses logic um, to rationally come to an understanding of where the imbalance is in that system and is using it at a level that is sometimes pre-symptomatic, meaning the, the symptom has yet to even uh, manifest. Now that's a high use of this, this science and this art form, um, because at that level, you're looking really to treat preventatively. You're looking to see if we can maintain such high level function that you don't get the illness in the first place. Now, is that easy? No, that takes a long time of skill and practice and training um, really to arrive at that level. Um, but ultimately in Chinese medicine, the saying is you don't dig a well after you've become thirsty and you don't forge weapons of war once the, once the battle has begun. And so if there's a critique of our modern application, it's that we treat once there's already a, um, a problem. And that's the place where most patients in this modern world, they go to see the person once they have a problem. And indeed, that makes a certain amount of sense, too. And you want to have that. And, and that is no, um, that's no riff on, on that system. That's, uh, in many ways, the most sophisticated acute medical care the world has ever seen. Um, and it's a miracle to have access to that should you need that um, for the variety of emergency situations that come up. But if you talk to and spend enough time talking to people about their health condition, um, you'll find that 99.5% of the times people need something, it's for a chronic condition. It's for a something that doesn't feel good. Something's not right. It's not gonna, not gonna maybe kill them, but it can lead to that eventually. But at the beginning, it's something that's annoying. It's uncomfortable. It um, and it really takes away from their quality of life. And I think that's where as we move towards the idea of integrative medicine, acupuncture and Chinese medicine is well suited as an incredibly sophisticated model of understanding the human organism um, that applying those principles can really help optimize quality of life and reduce a lot of suffering. Absolutely. And I mean, that that's a really fascinating modality when you describe it in that way. Um, so given that information, are you able to sort of 
foresee where somebody sort of headed in a direction of a imbalance of some kind or illness based on the whole preventative measures? Like if somebody comes in there and they just, you know, they're, they're not necessarily complaining of an ailment, but they come in there for a preventative measure. Can you sort of, can, is there a way for you to sort of gauge that? I think there's a way to gauge the uh, level of the quality of how well they are able to manage their overall system and um, whether or not they might have inherited some good fortune. Um, we call it Jing Qi in Chinese medicine, um, which is to say there are some people, and I think most people who have been around long enough notice this, some people do all the wrong things. I take, for example, um, Keith Richards, drink, smoke, sex, um, sleep bad, um, and he's probably going to live to be 100. And then there are some people <laughs> that, you know, they do everything right. They don't eat the wrong thing. They don't drink. They, and they seem to have a, a poor, poor health outcome. So sometimes you get um, um, a good inheritance in this life. And you can abuse it and still uh, keep on rocking. Um, and some people really need to maintain a, a good oversight of their well-being or they really fall into um, a lot of distress. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so yes, so that's my job. I mean, when you ask, can you do that? Yeah, that's ultimately my, that's my job is to um, offer um, the best information possible in the context of a healing environment. Um, to give the person the ability to avoid, um, if possible. But again, we're not, we're not, you don't really win awards for prevention. You know, you get uh, hero awards when you save someone's life, and rightly so. Right. Um, but those are not things that you get to, uh, um, you know, uh, get high. But, but, but in, in essence, that's the, that would be the highest practice of Chinese medicine. So I'm, I'm grateful in my business, in my business, I have now been here long enough that I have seen um, patients and then their children. And then I've seen the grandparents of those children. And I've had the chance to see people for 10, 12, 15 years. And now they come in mostly for wellness care. They come in for prevention. They come in um, whether it's, you know, monthly or whether or not it's quarterly, depending on how they're doing. Um, and, you know, I'd say building a practice around having patients that want to support my office um, with that um, is really one of the great achievements, I think, um, if I'm something I'm proud of here. So, yeah. And, and your board certified in traditional Chinese medicine, is that in any way similar to how board certifications are done in the United States on the allopathic route? Do you write board exams every 10 years or how... How is that sort of achieved and maintained? So the way that this has um, come about um, is all uh, programs where you go study um, acupuncture and Chinese medicine in the United States, those are, uh, they are anywhere from 3,000 to 4,200 hour programs. Um, when I started, there was no doctoral program. So I'm called the second generation of acupuncturists. So I actually started this in 1994, 95, um, and um, finished school in 98, 99. And back then they did not even have a doctoral degree. The highest academic achievement was a master's, which is 3000 hours. 
which does require then sitting for boards and taking tests that you are qualified both for the safe practice of acupuncture as well as all the clean needle technique and the you know all the different principles you have to follow to get licensed um, now there are doctoral programs so those provide those are 4,000 hour programs whether it's doctor of chiropractic doctor of physical therapy um, those all require 4,000 hours which lead to the the academic degree of, um, of, a, of a doctorate. Now, did you spend any time as an apprentice to a doctor of Chinese medicine or, or how, you know, what's the equivalent of the residency or, or is there one? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, well, this is back in 95, but as you can probably guess, historically Chinese medicine um, is a, is both a, academic study, but was primarily both a familial traditional um, uh, practice where the grandfather passed it to their son and down, down on down the line so that it was, it was literally a, on point of one of my teachers who's a very hardcore Japanese um, uh, practitioner. Um, he was threatened with his life if he ever told the secrets of what he was given in his uh, family's tradition, um, which is a bit extreme, but um, Wow. You know, that was your income. That was your family's income was uh, access to maintaining um, that information and applying it. When the uh, communists came, um, uh, that became then more of a uh, broadened academic study where you can go get a degree and anyone can go do it. Um, whereas apprenticing, as you mentioned earlier, was the primary method where you studied with your master for years to learn the art and science of this medicine. So there are bits and pieces of that, um, probably not in the traditional way where, you know, certainly in school, if you find an if a professor or someone you like, you can choose to study with them for an extended period of time. Um, uh, but otherwise, no, it's a little more where you're following different uh, professors, teachers and clinicians and learning from each of them individually. And one thing that uh, I think is unique with your practice and and your approach is that you've taken this ancient modality um, that goes back generations and you've you've sort of blended it with current medical research and innovation. Um, most of the acupuncturists that I've met over the years and the the clinics that I've been to have been very traditional and just sort of stick to that old school model and and sort of stay in that arena. Um, but can you elaborate on how you've sort of uniquely fused old and new medicine in your practice? Because I think it's, I think it's very unique. Yeah, thanks, Mike. That's actually a, a good question too. Is it is it ties together that um, I guess it's just a personal thing. Um, first, when I started out, if you want a little story, I was in my first semester of school, um, and I was ready to drop out. I was gonna not do this. I wasn't quite certain if this was, I don't know, a great career path or what the potential of this was, and even um, whether or not there was enough of a scientific explanation to offer um, my, both my own mind as well as whether or not society would accept this method and you could actually make a career out of it. Um, and then as I was about to kind of jump ship, um, I was uh, reading an article in Santa Fe, New Mexico from Discover Magazine that outlined the story of a, um, 
a neuroscientist, um, and he had written a book recently that was a study um, in which he was a co-inventor of something called an fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. So he's a very sophisticated Chinese um, scientist and neuroscientist. And the story was about him traveling in Taiwan. In Taiwan, he twisted his ankle and he was visiting his family. And in the course of him being there, he was in such pain that um, people kept suggesting, go get some acupuncture. And uh, to which he would respond, I'm a scientist. I'm not gonna, I wouldn't you know, do that fairy tale nonsense, you know? And his ankle wasn't getting better. So he was like, what the heck? I'll go get some acupuncture. He goes and gets some acupuncture. And lo and behold, he's like, this is crazy, but my anchor, ankle feels better. So he took it upon himself to take that um, experience. And when he got back to his lab, he was a professor at UC Irvine. Um, he did a study with his graduate students. And there are some points historically on the, um, on the pinky toe um, and along that channel that are used for treating eye diseases. And this just befuddles our kind of linear thinking um, or Newtonian model of how the hell could something on the pinky toe be related to the eye. And so this is also answering and responding to your first question about you know, acupuncture, um, because how in the world can there be something at the pinky toe and you say, this is going to help my eye. And so this is what happened basically. Um, they would put them into this fMRI, they'd stimulate this, this um, central retinal pathway of the eye, and you can then map what part of the brain lights up when you do that. And lo and behold, the visual cortex in the part of the brain lights up and they go, bing, there's the area. And then they put the graduate students in the fMRI, they needle these points along the pinky, and lo and behold, to his great surprise, what part of the brain do you think lights up? The same part of the brain when they stimulated the eye. And so um, this, when I read that article, I said, okay, there's something to this. I don't know how this works, but this is a very interesting article that really kind of kept me on this trajectory. And um, I'm, like, like I said, this is 25 years later and I haven't looked back because um, modern science, for your second question here, and why have I adapted or adopted the language of science to try to help articulate Chinese medicine? It's really only not only just for my own benefit of trying to develop a, a more um, comprehensive model of the human being. Um, and it's not because I'm, I'm anti the language of Chinese medicine, actually far from it. I think the, the, the poetry within Chinese medicine is beautiful. Um, um, but when you try to have a modern American patient comes into my nice clinic, and then I say, your spleen chi is deficient. They look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? So <laughs> I have, I did not want my patients walking out of here like that woo woo fruit nut with his spleen chi and his yin yang deficiencies. And I don't know what it was. I didn't want them having any of that um, confusion. Um, I wanted yeah. to, them to be perfectly clear that I was aware of what the basis upon which what I was doing was doing, both its benefits and its limitations. And so I'm willing to work within the model of, of what I can accomplish 
mostly in the relationship that I build between um, another human being and their wish for health and happiness and how what I do offers a therapeutic and very unique system for them to dive deep into where the hell did they get stuck? Why are you in a position where your health is not well? Where are you stuck? Is it in your heart? Are you are you befuddled by emotional um, uh, you know, challenges? Are you limited in your thinking about who you are and what you can become? Are you stuck because you don't move your body and you need to learn some basic skills about how to how the operating system of this vehicle works. So my job is to identify where any one person has gotten stuck. And if you listen, people tell you where they're stuck. But in that sense, I'm just a mirror. I'm just a mirror reflecting back to them things that maybe they can't articulate. And if they can then gain some insight from that and apply that across the span of their life choices, and acupuncture becomes a healing tool, becomes a healing tool that provides a very unique experience that's different than massage, that's different than um, Reiki, that's different than a host of other perfectly valid tools, therapies, strategies, um, but is the one that I use um, uh, as the mainstay of how I, I welcome people into their wholeness and into their up opportunity to evolve to the next highest level of their function. Now, you touched on something that uh, sort of jumped out at me, and I, I understand that your approach is whole body medicine addressing all the systems. Um, now, you touched on emotions. Is there a—and forgive me if I'm speaking in Western terms. I mean, you know— uh, Speak in any term you want. habit of mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there a psychiatric sort of component where you can, it might not be physical, but there is there an emotional sort of component that you can treat through acupuncture and TCM? The Chinese and the model of Chinese medicine has never distinguished between them. So there's not like this thing called a psychiatric problem and a physical problem. There's no line that's drawn. I told you I was talking in Western terms. <laughs> uh, where these things, I guess, I guess so. Um, and that's, and again, um, that model has its own strengths and weaknesses as well. And Chinese medicine has its own strengths and weaknesses. So um, the limitations then are, are that in some level, um, uh, they can, you could say they kind of interact and bleed into each other. That's not the right word. They can kind of move uh, within where one affects the other. Obviously, if you're in pain, you can be frustrated. <laughs> but here's the, here's the beauty of Chinese medicine. You can also be frustrated and you can have pain that has no physical, physical correlate, meaning it has no structural issue of why you're having that pain. Now, sometimes that's, and, and what you begin to see, and I've been doing this long enough, you begin to see the cultural language of medicine in America evolve in front of our eyes. So we say things like psychosomatic. We see things like disciplines within research called psychoneuroendocroimmunology. That's just a fancy word of saying basically Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine is psychoneuroendocroimmunology. And we see all of the relationships between how um, 
mind, emotions, um, and your your physical body all interaffect each other. And so, um, indeed, uh, this has become probably the main stumbling block for a lot of people is that they are unable to draw a relationship between the fact that they hate their job or they're frustrated or their relationship is, is not well and the fact that they have back pain or the fact that they have various forms of um, physiological effects that uh, could be related to that. Um, but, um, you know, obviously you should never go out of your way to try to say that. That has to almost be self-discovered in a way. Um, and when someone is given an opportunity to reflect on that, most people say, yeah, I, you know, I can see how that would be connected. So is that sort of is that sort of go in the way of this description of how you you're a mirror to your patients, um, yeah, and that absolutely. if they are having problems, you can sort of reflect what you're seeing. Will you ask them personal questions um, in course, those situations, yeah. like relationships and things like that? You betcha. Yeah, I mean those are central. You know, and those are um, and again, and you can do it in a way that um, is not confined to the. Um, the, the psychotherapist chair or the psychiatrist um, uh, chair, um, but in a way that is just a conversation between hu two human beings exploring, um, you know, why is it that you're suffering? Why have you had 20 years of chronic back pain? Or, you know, how did you, um, you know, develop these headaches? And when did they begin? And uh, what makes them better? And uh, you notice if, if um, anything makes it, what makes it feel better? Um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, each, each, each person is unique in how that manifests. And, um, sometimes it's just, they're wearing the wrong shoes. I mean, um, hopefully you can get things as simple as that. And it's not because of a, a daddy complex or anything. So people who come to you are typically, I mean, you're in America, so people are going to come to you using sort of the, uh, you know, conventional Western lingo, um, you've very well described how different the sort of TCM mode of treating someone differs from the Western mode. And as you said, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Is it ever, is it ever a challenge for you as a practitioner to trace somebody telling you something in Western terms back to um, your modality of TCM medicine? No. That's not an issue. You do some work in, you do a lot of work in fertility. Um, tell me about that. Um, well, uh, I was starting out, um, my career started out in New York where I, I worked actually at a, an integrative pain clinic. Um, and after about a year's worth of seeing 30 to 40 patients a day, um, treating them for every type of, of, of pain. Um, that type of busy clinic um, didn't really uh, give me the opportunity to practice the medicine in the way that I wanted because it was so busy. And, um, you know, to do an acupuncture treatment, um, you really need to have the, the time as well. And that was fine as far as it went starting. I got really good at acupuncture, seeing that many patients every day. Um, but uh, it wasn't going to be the way that I wanted to um, um, at least um, orient my career. 
And so I was looking for the next thing and I was crossing the street in Manhattan and uh, Union Square. And I was looking now to open up my own office and a bus uh, pulled in front of the, uh, the place in Union Square that I was standing. And on the side of the bus was a sign um, that the New York Health Department had put up called Past 35. Well, it said, Past 35, a woman's fertility drops by 50%. And when I read that, um, I happened to have just closed um, a book, which I should have brought that out as well, um, called The Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. And that is the oldest medical book in the world. I think it's on the order of 3,500 years old or something like that. Anyways, in the opening chapter is the story of the court physician, his name is Chibo, and the Yellow Emperor. And the first thing they discuss in that um, uh, chapter is the treatment of infertility. And so here I was standing on Union Square looking for my next move, ready to open an office, um, get out of this busy pain mill. And lo and behold, I finished the chapter in which the first conversation between the Chibo and the Yellow Emperor is on the seven year life cycles that women's lives go through. And that is seven, the adult teeth come in, 14, the dew of heaven arises, the menses begin, 21, the wisdom teeth come in, 28 is considered the height of your physical and reproductive strength. And then 35 represents a transition um, in which fertility becomes more difficult. And that so shocked me, not shocked me, it was a great confirmation, back to what we talked about before, how modern science um, had studied that there is a statistical average mean loss of 50% of your endogenous sex hormones at the age of 35. That means that the Chinese had observed nature well enough to discern and observe that indeed these life cycle transformations happen. And I saw that, I put those together. I thought that was interesting. I then um, met a gentleman um, who now runs, well, mine's 22 years, his is 23. So he is technically the longest uh, practicing acupuncturist in America, specializing only in fertility. And um, I met that guy and saw what he was doing and I thought that was really cool. And then um, a, a study came out that showed that the use of acupuncture in conjunction with in vitro fertilization dramatically improved clinical pregnancy outcomes. And once that happened, I became a full-time acupuncturist practicing acupuncture seeing fertility patients. Wow. It's fascinating to look back on the history and see that there's something that um, ancient practitioners saw that is being manifest today without the use of, you know, sophisticated labs and, and you know, radiology reports and all that. I mean, that's, that's pretty sure. mind-blowing. Um, well, it is and it isn't, but remember, I, I, I was thinking about this this morning, actually. Um, We've elevated science to a god in this culture. And um, science is not a god, it's a method. And it's a method of inquiring into the nature of the phenomenal universe. And it has brought with it a lot of information about um, the 
miracle of this this thing we call being here. But um, observation using our eyes, our ears, our senses, and simply observing the natural world also brings in um, uh, that information as well. So it's not surprising to me that the acute observation of the life cycle transformations of a human being falls into certain patterns that are noticeable if you pay attention. Um, and in a way, science is a method of paying attention to very specific isolated phenomenon and also can yield um, very helpful information. So in a way, um, they're, they are kind of confirming each other and it's nice to have that confirmation and I, I welcome it. And, and again, that's uh, definitely, if we didn't definitely. To, if we didn't, if we didn't get to it in the beginning, um, uh, a British surgeon that um, I've spoken to, and he wrote a book called The Uncharted Body. Um, his, here's another thing that I, I talk about in the office, but I may as well mention it here, but most people don't even know that there's been a new organ discovered is about three years ago. And if I told you that, you'd say, what? Right? Right, of course. Let's hear your, let's hear your, what? What? <laughs> so, thank you. Um, yes, so it's called the interstitium. Right, so the interstitium uh, is, and, and it's still being argued, but it qualifies for what we call an organ, meaning a stomach, a liver, right? Um, that is, it's separated by a fascial plane that defines it as an organ. And the interstitium was not discovered because as soon as you biopsy or take a piece of skin, it's dead. And so they weren't, under, they weren't able to see under living conditions that the fascial planes that make up everything in the body are qualify as their own independent organ and actually conduct piezoelectricity um, that is actually faster than how our nervous system um, uh, produces information out of our um, out of our central nervous system. And acupuncture is the tool of accessing those areas of electrical resistance along the fascial planes that helps move the communication of chi uh, or or energy. Uh, throughout the body. And now, and this is the fun part for me intellectually, the new studies in what's called embryogenesis, so the science of the ability to see what happens at the first days of when an egg and a sperm cell come together, and then to actually witness the unfolding of one and two becoming three and five and the unfolding, there's a, there's a point at which it forms what's called the yolk sac, where it has three distinct layers called the ectoderm, the endoderm, and the mesoderm. Under those conditions, it turns out that the acupuncture model that explains why the heart and the kidneys are connected um, and why these different organ systems are what we call yin and yang balanced, turns out in that the feature of the, the yolk sac where those three tripart divisions, at one early part, those organs were connected whereas now they are distally separated in a full human organism. And they communicate via the fascial planes. And so this um, surgeon, this British surgeon wrote a book who had spent um, 20 years as a surgeon and then got into acupuncture. And his explanation for understanding and using um, early embryology and the interstitium along the fascial planes, it brings a really beautiful model of what the Chinese Again, somehow we're able to figure out a long time before science ever came along. Wow, that that's fascinating. And I mean, that 
I wonder if that whole sort of um, description of the cell division can somehow be traced to what goes wrong in um, the genesis of cancer and cancerous cells, because they're dividing too, but they're not dividing in a way that the body desires. You think there's any correlation well, You just there? opened up a whole other... How many hours do you have? Because <laughs> that's, a, that's a, um, another part of this is... And this is a mystery, and it's an absolutely amazing miracle, is the... And I might have some of the, the terms incorrect, but there's a point at which um, cell division happens in early embryogenesis where it reaches a stage I think it's day four as a marula, um, but don't quote me, at which the cells are still undifferentiated. That means they are just, they're nothing. They haven't become a hand or a head or a heart. They haven't, they haven't divided into specializing. They're undifferentiated. And then literally on the next day, they every universally, they start to specialize. They start to become a hand, an elbow, a brain, and all of that. And the question is, how the hell does it know how to do that? What is right. what is the organizing intelligence that informs these undifferentiated cells to then become a specialized human being? And that mystery um, of what is the organizing intelligence, um, I just find absolutely uh, infinitely fascinating and how science is going to offer us a different model of who we are as human beings that, again, this gets to, I said, like, if you have a several hours for this, but not so much that <laughs> what we call consciousness, consciousness is not an epiphenom. It's not an epi or an epiphenom of having a body. Consciousness literally creates the body. You can put that Sorry, one in your pipe. Consciousness. So rather than the um, <laughs> uh, consciousness being the the epiphenom, meaning the phenomenon of having awareness, the phenomenon of being an aware being, which is what defines you and I. A human being is a, uh, is a uh, species that has the ability to be aware of itself, and which literally fundamentally means aware of death, right? Meaning you're aware that you're going to die. Um, whereas, um, so anyways, so how is it that at that stage of undifferentiated cells, um, does it then know to become a human being? Mm -hmm. That's going to be a fun one to ponder. Yeah, no kidding. It's it's a hard one to wrap your head around. Um, I know that uh, you're big on light therapy and the benefits of being in sunlight. That's a very controversial topic. Uh, in this day and age where there's a lot of people in the dermatology community uh, telling everyone to stay out of the sun. Um, talk a little bit about that. What's what's your take on, on this? Yeah. Um, well, again, let's say you're the physician and someone's coming to you and, and they're suffering. They're depressed. They don't sleep well. They have low energy. They don't want to have sex with their wife anymore. Their back hurts. They hate their job, right? You go down this list. And they'd gone to their dermatologist and they had been told, you know, over and over, make sure you put on lots of sunscreen, right? Because the sun will give you what? Yeah. 
What's it going to give you? It's going to give you skin cancer, right? Right. Isn't that, isn't that what you're told? Why else would you want to protect yeah. yourself? Yeah, yeah exactly. that's, that's the big scare. So, that's, that's the big issue. Right, so, so what are the two, what are the two primary stories within um, most people's experience within modern medicine that they have been told are dangerous? What are the two? We've already noted one that you said the sun, right? Sun is bad. Yeah. You must slather sunscreen on um, or you will get skin cancer and you'll be dead. What's the other one? Um, don't eat what? I, I don't eat uh well there's so many. Don't eat meat. <laughs> I don't know. Well what what's what's in meat? Sorry, say that again. What's in meat that you shouldn't eat? Protein. Starts with an F. Um, fats. There you go. Right. Okay. What's another yeah. word? I'm sorry. Uh, you're getting a little bit of a taste of, um, how I put my patients on the spot to make them have to think. So I won't do that because we have a little delay. So, um, I'll just, I'll yeah. just lay it out there. Yes. The two okay. primary myths that are outlined within the, um, meeting of your family physician are stay away from fatty foods um, because it raises your cholesterol, correct? And then the other one is right. stay out of the sun and wear your sunscreen because it'll give you skin cancer. When we look back on this advice and we start to recognize that this represents a two-pronged assault on how your physiology actually operates, um, and that there are so many things in medicine that are what I call a half-truth. And so it makes it confusing for the average patient when they have neither the time, the inclination to want to research for themselves to deconstruct whether or not the veracity of the claims made by their provider are actually truthful in the way that they are a scientific fact, unassailable, and therefore like the laws of gravity are such that if they get their ass in the sun, they're going to die of skin cancer. And if they eat a, um, a piece of fat within that um, grass-fed steak, uh, that's gonna kill them with a heart attack. And um, that's an exaggeration, obviously, um, but the underlying story that's told is that fat is bad for you and the sun gives you skin cancer. And I think when we, again, evaluate the veracity of those claims, um, both scientifically and medically, we're not talking about facts and science. We're talking about the religion of scientism and the stories that are perpetrated within medical kind of industry, um, which then make their way into the idiot box called the television that most people surround themselves with and then take as the gospel of how you're supposed to stay healthy. And I would say I would shut my mouth if indeed it turned out that people who did not eat a macronutrient called fat and stayed out of the sun exhibited high qualities of health longevity. Um, but it seems to me that rather the opposite is true. They develop 
number one, low vitamin D levels, which all the science has um, uh, overtly uh, shown us is a risk factor for multiple health diseases. And the half-truth that is built into this is not that the sun is bad, although you don't want to get burned. Um, and again, this is where half-truths start to become ultimately full lies, is because the sun offers you the very information that is central to how you set the timing of everything in your body. And so if people who are living like zoo animals who work inside um, uh, all day long, disconnected from the solar canopy, they are exposing themselves instead, not to the way that humans evolved on this planet, but to the way like you and I are now sitting in front of a blue screen device, which places both our physiologies at risk for an overabundance of a light frequency that has a host of problematic effects when it's not in balance. And so the diagnosis that sun is bad for you is absolute nonsense. And the sooner that we um, arrive at a more full appreciation for how different ethnicities, ethnic skin tone is just a variation on the adaptive nature of how much sun you need. So if you are of a Northern European, what's called genetic haplotype, your body works slightly differently in how you use the mitochondria's energy metabolism in that you release what's called infrared light as a part of how you were able to colonize Northern colder climates. And if you have darker skin tone, you need more sunlight. And so um, the idea that the sun is inherently bad is scientific nonsense. Um, the idea that fat, which is only one of the three only choices we have, fat, proteins, and carbohydrates, is inherently bad is itself more scientific nonsense. Now, there are lots of half-truths in there too. You shouldn't be eating shitty oils, uh, hydrogenated oils. You shouldn't be eating oils that are full of um, modified um, um, fats um, which are um, oxidized and are poison. So um, this is where the subtlety of a consultation comes in, where if someone wants to actually improve their health, then we have to give them the nuance and deconstruct the nonsense that they've been fed and see if they can actually get over um, whatever they've been programmed to believe. And if they can't, I don't have any judgment on it. I just try to offer them what is at least my own research in this area. And the sun and fat work together. If you don't have enough cholesterol on your skin, it means you can't convert those solar rays into the usable form of how vitamin D3, which is exactly the same chemical as cholesterol. They're mirrors of each other and how they operate in your physiology. So you need both cholesterol and fat for a healthy nervous system, healthy reproductive system, healthy immune function, good brain function. And if you miss out on the sun's um, important setting of the timing mechanism through your brain and your suprachiasmatic nucleus, it sets the timing of everything. So anyone who has a health condition, they have, broadly speaking, what's called um, inflammation. So um, when you understand that these two are, are related in um, a manner in which if we can figure out how to access that information both between the macronutrients we put in our body and our connection to the earth and to the solar canopy, this is how you optimize your battery.
This is how you optimize the ability of your body to um, make massive amounts of energy, which we call sleeping well, thinking well, um, feeling good, having energy, uh, resilience, good immune function, um, good sexual function. All of those are tied um, to your ability to really harness that energy. And most people um, have inherited, I guess is the best way to put it, a different story about what constitutes um, how you stay healthy, which is usually whatever. In this culture, eat a low-fat diet and exercise a lot. Right. And let me ask you something. I mean, you you, you always have such a gift for uh, Robert articulation, and uh, I so appreciate the way you make complex ideas simple. How challenging is it to communicate these kinds of um, issues with your patients who might be sort of institutionalized with the sort of standard low fat, stay out of the sun, all the things that were fed. Um, how difficult is that to communicate to your patients? Um, I'd say on average, I am very fortunate that I get very um, high intelligent patients who are motivated for the most part. And for my physician friends who are practicing in the tre trenches as family docs and other things, I think they have a, they have neither the time um, nor if the patient probably doesn't have any interest. But the patients I see are highly educated, have high levels of interest in their health, have already probably explored a lot of things, have Googled a lot of things, have read a number of books, and on some level come in with a lot of um, good, sophisticated questions. And they're just seeking my counsel on um, how to go about thinking about that, to which if I get an interested mind that wants to learn some more about these things, um, I first start by trying not to vomit too much information on them in the first visit, which I'm, I've been accused of doing. Um, and then I um, have, I send out a summary, um, three and a half page article that explains the key central ideas of longevity and the information that I say this, this biodegradable space-time suit, which is what it is, um, what is the information that it needs in order for it to maximize the ability to make energy? It's as simple as that, if you want to boil it down. And that information is what I send them. And light is one of them. Sunlight, full-spectrum sunlight. Tell me some of the challenges of being an acupuncturist. It is a unique uh, mode of medicine. What are some difficulties in 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 doing it? Um, again, that's a that's a, a good question. There are several challenges. Um, I just did one. I, I did another podcast um, uh, with the gentleman. Uh, it's more around business issues, and he's always been very supportive of my practice and my business and always kind of admired um, some of how, how it works and, and then was also how it got started. And um, first part of your question when I think about the challenges is obviously starting a business, right? Starting a practice, an acupuncture practice. That is, first, how the heck do you make a living doing this? 
um, because um, it's not so simple when you work outside of the traditional way that insurance reimburses people because um, these are mostly cash businesses or cash practices. So you could say on some level, it means that you have to be have enough confidence and be good enough at what you're doing that people are willing to pay for your services out of pocket um, and being able to then uh, maintain your business and uh, maintain patient referrals. Uh, um, you know, again, setting aside marketing and all the kind of stuff that goes into um, running a business um, that alone poses its own kind of hurdle as it relates to surviving in the midst of how people expect their medical care to be paid for by whatever insurance they have. So that's a, that's one hurdle. Um, if this is probably maybe for your your acupuncturists or your listeners thinking, maybe I should become an acupuncturist. That seems like it'd be fun. Um, there's certainly that hurdle. Um, and another thing I'm proud of, I've had eight or nine or now 10 patients that have gone on to become acupuncturists um, who are now doing this medicine. Wow. Which is pretty cool. Um, I'd say after that, yeah. um, after that comes, I mean, if you're a healer, and if that's in your blood and you feel a kind of um, connection to wanting to be of service in a way, um, you know, then there's a degree of the challenges of just dealing with suffering. People who have lots of uh, health challenges or pain or, um, again, pain in all kinds of different ways that that can happen. Um, I'd say I have been very blessed and able to avoid some of the bureaucracies that are associated with um, practicing medicine. Um, it's simplified, um, and I'm very grateful that um, I have a community that has built around my business that support me and come see me and um, consult with me and get acupuncture from me. And uh, But that took a long time. It took a while to build, and there were points at which I didn't know if it was going to actually work or I'd be able to support my family doing it. Um, I'd say that's probably the main challenge because the only one after that is you love helping people to reach their optimal health and well-being. And if you love that and you um, want to work from that um, kind of position, then I don't think there's anything that could stop you if, if you want to. Um, so that shouldn't really be a, a challenge so much as um, an invitation to become as uh, qualified and as competent and as compassionate um, as you can be. And I think you'll ultimately be successful. Yeah, um, you know, I I just wanna take a moment to, uh, to say how much I appreciate people like you because I think it's people that do the kind of work that you do and the research and the love that you put into it and the care for your patients um, is really what it's all about. And I mean, uh, your patients and the city in which you practice uh, is extremely fortunate to have somebody like you. And I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing oh, because you, you're awesome at what you do. And yeah, no, I mean, keep it up. You're, you're, you're an amazing individual and you do remarkable amounts of research. And uh, just in the conversations I've had with you over the years, I've learned a ton just speaking to you. So uh, keep it up. And and uh, before we wrap up here, because uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, because I, I could keep talking to you. 
Um, where can people find you? So they can uh, go uh, to the website, would probably be the easiest, which is where most people can access acuhealthaz.com. That's acuhealthaz.com. And that'll get them to our you know, contact email. There's a web form they can fill out if they want to reach out to us. Um, give us a call. Um, Mary up front here is pretty good at answering questions, but I float in and out of, um, you know, um, patient rooms and, and can speak to you personally and see if we're a good fit and see if uh, there's something that might be um, uh, you could find here that could help your uh, health. Awesome. Well, Robert, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. And uh, I mean, I feel like uh, we've just touched on the surface of so many things we can discuss and i hope that you'll join us again for a future episode if yeah, you have the time talk about man i hope you're getting in the ice and doing the ice baths and doing your cold thermogenesis and doing all your good light water magnetism eating your dha so get in the ice baby it's winter time there's no uv in the in the sun so the only way you get to optimize it is getting in the cold so um hopefully we'll uh, hear more about your uh, cold thermogenesis experiences next time we can talk Absolutely, man. Thanks a lot, Robert. We really appreciate it. All right. Peace out. That'll do it for this edition of the Natural Man podcast. Uh, you can always join us on Instagram where the conversation continues and we're constantly doing updates and sharing different things. That's at Natural Man Podcast. And uh, hope you join us for another episode. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike C. Stay healthy. This has been the Natural Man Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast for more episodes. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Kids, I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we the perfect, perfect podcast, podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on, on the Dean Blundell, Blundell Network. Network. Or on our YouTube channel. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Because, because democracy, democracy is, is something, something you do. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.